0: Hey, good morning, Cross Point. Sorry, am I super close? Uh, hey, I'm Braxton. We're the Rayburn family. This is Lucas. He's eight. This is Ava. She'll be seven.
1: By the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for ye will not abandon my souls to Haiti or let your Holy One seek corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified.
0: Said, continue to preach the gospel no matter what. Father, we love you this morning. That's in your name I pray. Amen.
2: Well, good morning. I mean, am I the only one in here? Are y'all just like you seeing a ghost? Like he's not supposed to be in here. Uh, I'm good, y'all. We, uh, I'm alive. I can't smell or taste, but I'm good. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go to Acts chapter two. Uh, Acts chapter two. Uh, and, and while you're flipping there, I'm sure you're already there. Uh, last Thursday was. Uh, Veterans Day and so we like to give honor honors due and so if you're a veteran here this morning I want to ask you to stand uh, so we as a church can just I know you don't do it to be seen uh, but if you have served in our our military in the past we just kind of want to give you recognition I'm going to ask you to stand real quick. Uh, We have uh, John stand up. Let's give them a hand just for their sacrifice. Thank you all so much. I know y'all don't do that to be recognized, but we will to do that. Craig looked at me like he was very mad at me. I'm sorry, Craig. Uh, but anyway, so uh, Acts chapter 2, we will be in 22 through 46, or sorry, 36. Uh, as Jessica read, uh, Luke uh, says, there's no way that I can finish it today, but I'm going to give it my best try. Uh, I do say uh, thank you uh, for prayers. Uh, if you didn't know, I, last Friday, uh, Ten days ago, I tested positive for COVID, uh, so that's why some people are looking at me like, I'm a ghost up here, you shouldn't be here, but I'm good. Uh, but I will stay away from you, I promise, that's why you didn't see me before service. When I get done, I'm going to go out and go out the back door until you feel fine. Y'all are all six feet away from me, we're good. Uh, CDC says six foot, so we're good. Uh, and nobody sits on the front row in our church, so anyway, so we're, <laughs> so we're really good. We got more than more than six feet. Uh, But I do want to thank you for your prayers Uh, and the text messages I got this past week. Continue to pray for Ashley. Uh, She also tested positive on Monday of this week. Uh, She's really struggling with uh, the COVID headaches. Uh, So just be praying for her that she uh, uh, recovers uh, quickly. I want to say thanks to Luke for, uh, as he said, coming out of the bullpen last week. Uh, and so, uh, I, as, he began thinking, as he began talking about bullpen, I was sitting in my living room last Sunday uh, drinking my cup of coffee that I could not smell nor taste, uh, but I was drinking it anyway, and he began talking about the bullpen, and I just began thinking about uh, the 1990s of the Atlanta Braves and old John Rocker, the closer, getting called out of the bullpen, and I kept thinking about... You know, his old skipper, Bobby Cox, stepping out, going, uh, anyways, I'm thankful that we got Luke as our John Rocker. They can come in out of the bullpen and, and fill in. And so anyway, let's, let's dive into the word, uh, cause my competitive side wants to get done through verse 36, uh, this morning, uh, and so last week, what, what where we're at is Pentecost has happened. The Holy Spirit has descended upon the apostles, uh, and they began to praise God uh, for the mighty works that He had done, beginning to proclaim those. Uh, and the supernatural one of the supernatural things is that the Spirit enabled them to speak in, in other tongues. And and what was really cool, and I hope you grasped this last week, uh, is that of there's three uh, pilgrim feasts that we see through the Scripture, and Passover is one of them. And, and so uh the the day the moment that was I believe preordained before the foundations of the earth that the spirit would come and dwell among the only apostles was the same day that God had already orchestrated for thousands of people to be at this place like I hope that you can't like that's not coincidence y'all like that's a big deal that that ultimately I in my mind it's almost like You know, you're, if you're a parent and you want to set your kids up for success as much as possible, it's like God, the father did this for the apostles. Like the moment, then the spirit comes and empowers them to preach the gospel. God has already ordained for thousands of people to be there. Man, what a good God, right? And what a God who had a bulletproof plan that he was going to orchestrate for this thing to happen. Like, I hope y'all catch caught that last week. And so anyway, the, they, they began to speak and began to proclaim the goodness of God in these tongues. And then Luke talked about how last week that there were these, all these groups of people that were in Jerusalem. And Scripture called them devout. It means that these guys weren't necessarily pagans or heathens. Like, these were devout Jews who were obeying God's command to be there. And they all heard it in their own language. And, and Luke did a great job last week. From, for They were from, from the north, south, east, and west. They were from the old, all of the known world. People heard the gospel or heard the, the goodness of, of God. And because of them hearing that, there were two reactions. Some were perplexed and amazed at what just going on. And some immediately began to mock them, saying they must be drunk on new wine which today is there's really only those two responses to the gospel anyway. It's rather amazement of what God has done or rejection. And that's what we see is that there's these groups of people who, by good chance, many of them had been there since Passover. And as many of them would stay, they would come in for Passover and they would stay there in the town. And so there's a chance that some of these people who were in this crowd had been there on Passover when Jesus was arrested and Jesus was crucified and Jesus was buried. And then Jesus rose. It's like, some of them could have been in that same setting. So there's this questions going on. What in the world happened? And so, Peter, along with 11, I never noticed that, even though I've read this many times, Peter wasn't the only one that stood up. All of them stood up. Peter just became the mouthpiece. And he began to begin to try to explain what had happened. All right. So that's what we talked about last week, how he goes to the prophet Joel, and how Joel had prophesied that in the last days that God would pour his spirit Spirit out upon all mankind. And And we looked at how Really, there's no discrepancy that all people now have the ability to know God and hear from God and be used by God. Young, old, poor, rich, because of the Spirit coming, now we all, all have access to the knowledge of God. And that's good news for me and you this morning. And so Peter stands up. And what I want to do is I want to draw your attention, first of all, to verse 17. Because Peter, I want to say Peter was crafty, but at this time, Peter was 100% filled with the Spirit, and so the Spirit was in control here. Uh, and directing even Peter's words, I believe. And that's our prayer when we stand up here is that that we've prepared, but that when we stand up here that the Spirit begins to, to speak through us. And so I think we see that in Peter. And Peter says something in verse 17 that I want to draw your attention to because I think it sets up the whole sermon. I think it's one of the greatest sermon introductions I've ever come across. This is what he says. In verse 17, he says, the, the, the prophet Joel says that in the last days... It shall be God, it shall be God declares, I'll pour out my spirit. He says, in the last days, why is that important? This is why, and follow with me. Actually, I got ahead of myself, but in, I'm going to tell you, in the last days, for the Jew, what they would understand when they heard the word last days, immediately their, their minds would go to the messianic age. Immediately their minds would go, oh, the last days, that's when the Messiah is going to come. That's when the Messiah is going to come and set up his throne. That's when the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to make every wrong right. He's going to set up his throne forever, and he will subdue all of our enemies. There will be no more oppression. And so when they think about the last days, they just don't think about the events around it. They think about the Messiah. And so Peter says, listen, in the last days, the spirit, God says, I will pour my spirit. So immediately their minds are probably going, the last days, the Messiah. So he's getting their attention, right? So you follow me so far. But I want to say this before going any further. Isn't it interesting after the first, really the first act of the apostles after praising the goodness of God is that he stood up and he preached a sermon. So, Justin, what's the big deal about that? You know how God chose to build his church through the book of Acts? Through the preaching of the gospel. Just like Wilfredo said, if there's anything that comes on, keep preaching the gospel. And God just convicted me as I studied this past week, because I had time just to, to think, right? Because, you know, with, with the pandemic, you have to stay at home. But when you got quarantined, you got to stay at home. Or Dr. Deloach told me I can go hunting, so I went hunting. Uh, 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 so I had time in a deer stand, and I even killed a deer. And uh, Anyway, uh, but here's the deal. God really convicted me of this. And all, and y'all have heard me say this all year long, and all the things that we try to do as a church, and we try to become better at the things that we're not as good at, we're trying to, you know, redefine who we are, may we never forsake the preaching of the gospel. Because it is what transforms lives. It is of first importance, Paul wrote to the Corinthians of the first importance. And so the very first thing that the church does, is stands up and preaches the gospel. But anyway, so he says, in the last days, the spirit would come. That was free, by the way. And so in, the, in these Jews' mind, they would automatically go to the messianic time that when God would send the promised Messiah. Now we can understand some 2,000 years removed that the coming of the Messiah would come in two periods. Uh, for them, they just saw the one that, that he would come in all of his glory, that he would come and set up his throne and overthrow Rome and things like that. But as we look at the Old Testament, we can see that there were two periods in which the, the, the Messiah would come, the Messianic age would be ushered in. Isaiah 53 talks about a suffering servant that when the Messiah came the first time, he would come as a suffering servant, as a humble Galilean, if you will. That he would come and the Jesus that we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that this would be the first coming. This would usher in the kingdom that the Jews longed for. They didn't see it, but it would usher that in for the, 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 the kingdom that they longed for. And he says this would start the last days, if you will. And what we mean by last days is the, is the coming, the first coming of Christ ushers in the last days. It begins the last days, the messianic age, if you will. So Justin, that seems boring, but we've got to note that it ushers in this messianic age, The now that the promised Messiah has come. Now they they missed that, but that's what he's saying is that the, the, for the Jew, they, they began to think about this this coming Messiah. So the first period or the first coming of the suffering servant will usher in the kingdom. Now, when we read through the new Testament, we read in first John where he says, children, it is the last hour. And first Peter, Peter says that, uh, that, that, that he was made manifest in the last times. And we even read it in Hebrews that in the last days that God has spoken to us through His son. So what we need to understand and what Peter's about to tell them is that when Christ came, it ushered in the last days. We are now living in the last days. It's ushered in the messianic age. But then the, second, or, the coming, or the coming of the Messiah would have a second period. And what we know is the second coming of Christ, where he would establish his kingdom forever. And that's what the Jews were looking for. They were looking for one to come in, who's going to set up his throne, overthrow Rome, and subdue all of the enemies. Listen to me. That day will come. Uh, it hasn't come yet. We're living in between the ushering in or the beginning or the, 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 the starting of God's kingdom being built to the culmination where Christ comes, and he sets up his throne. In the second coming, he will establish his kingdom forever. You and I, now in this present age, we live in a foretaste of the kingdom to come. We, we, we experience it, but it's in part, but when he comes, we will fully experience union and, and communion with Christ, the God and God. In the present age, Christ reigns in our hearts, but in the age to come, Christ will reign over all the earth. And Which is why Peter says, you actually see this, and you can see the, the two comings. In and, and verses 17 and 18 is where he talks about the Spirit's going to be poured out, and people uh, will come to know God. And then in, in verses uh, really 19 and 20, he's really talking about the second coming of Christ, which is why he says in verse 21, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In this present age, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But there will be a day whenever it's too late. He will come, and listen to me, and he will set up his throne. And at that moment, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess whether they choose to or not. So he says, we are living in the last days. He has just been ushered in. And it's interesting to me, That immediately after the filling of the Holy Spirit, and he's, he's about to set off to preach the gospel, that in Peter's mind, he's already thinking about the second coming of Christ. Jesus just ascended, and we saw that whenever he was telling them he was going to send, they were thinking, all right, is this, is this when you're going to come back? I said, if you're, like you're going to go up and straight back down? Like, what's going to happen? They were so anticipating Christ's return, they, 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 now they accepted his suffering servant. They understood it, and God's plan of redemption but their hearts long for Christ still to come and set up his throne. And even right here at the beginning, their eyes are already there that he's already preaching it and he's using the prophet Joel. And I just wanted to remind you this morning church that we are living in the last days. That at any moment Christ could return and set up his throne forever. May we be found living diligently in that reality that Christ is coming that this is not our home. Anyway, that was free too. So he sets up his introduction with this introduction of the last days. Peter draws them in. This is the time that they've been waiting for. This is the time they'd been longing for the last days, the day that the promised Messiah would be here. This is what they were waiting for. Y'all. To set up his kingdom. And in their minds, if they were good Jews, which they were, because uh, Luke says they were devout men, so they understood the, the, the promises and, and, and things like that. So in their mind had to be the question if it's the last days, then who in the world is the Messiah? If the Messiah's coming is what institutes the last days, and they did understand that, Peter's saying it's the last days, well, who's the Messiah? It's a reasonable question here, right? It's hard for me and you to cause, yeah, but like, let's try to go to their mind. Like this was like, boom, mind blowing moment for them, right? You, everybody with me? That's me yes. Go. Okay. What excitement, but confusion. I'm sure in their mind, they probably were thinking about the promise of Genesis 49, 10. It says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. I'm sure in their mind, they were thinking, how have we missed this Messiah? How could it be the last days? Who in the world is this guy? What is going on? They must be thinking. And this, my friends, I would like to submit is the post Perfect picture of a sermon introduction, because now he has, he has them drawn in, probably leaning in, who is this Messiah? In verses 22-36, Peter profoundly says, it is Jesus. It is Jesus, the Nazarene, he calls him. It is Jesus who he boldly proclaims. And what we see in 22 through 36, and I think I can still do it, is how Peter boldly proclaims Jesus Christ as the Messiah to these people. And what we will see is he will come all the way back full circle at the end to answer their question of what's going on right here at Pentecost. So if you're with me, four proofs that Peter gives that Jesus is the Messiah. If you're taking notes, number one is his life, his life. Verse 22, he says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in in your midst as you yourselves know. In verse 22, Peter gives them two undeniable truths about the life of Jesus. The first one is that God attested to Jesus. The word attested here, I mean, is a various different meanings, but all of them really point to what they should. And one of them could be that to, to uh, attest to something is to exhibit something, to put something on exhibition that, that you see it, that it's before your eyes. Another one is to, uh, it brings about the idea of proof that, that you're proving that this is something or even a proclamation to the high office. Of something. And so when, when Peter begins to preach this Jesus, first of all, of Nazareth, isn't it interesting that, that, and you'll see it through the book of Acts, they're always referring to him as Jesus of Nazareth. And I think there's a couple of reasons. One of the things I thought of is that was what was inscripted above the cross Jesus of Nazareth. It was one of those things that the apostles probably did in their boldness, like, because eventually what you'll see as we go through Acts is like, Jesus, you killed. There's personal responsibility that we'll see through these sermons. But he says this Jesus of Nazareth was attested by God. He was proven by God. He was exhibited by God. He was proclaimed by the Father to be the Son. He's attested by God. That's That's what Jesus says in John 8, 18. He says, I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Peter says that God himself gave proof to who Jesus was. That Jesus was the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the promised one. That the Father proclaimed to them who Jesus was. He showed them through. He gives us three means by which God attested. He says, uh, through mighty works and wonders and signs. That through Jesus' life, that God the Father attested to Jesus by these three things. The mighty works that he did, the wonders, and the signs. What Peter is saying is that there's overwhelming evidence by the attesting of the Father that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what Nicodemus came to him and said in John chapter 3 when he says, For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus saw it. When we see the word miracles here, and it's important for us to catch this because what we'll see over the next couple chapters, we'll see these signs and wonders a lot, that, that God was doing signs and wonders through the hands of the apostles. So we need to kind of have an understanding of what that is for future reference. Cool? Everybody with me, so when he talks about miracles, he's, he's literally talking about the supernatural work of God. Think about feeding the 5,000, healing the sick. Restoring sight to the blind, the breaking of bread, changing water to wine—these supernatural miracles that God did through the Son. Then He talks about the wonders, which really means the the marveling that the someone who just witnessed this miracle, the the the, the what was going on inside this this marveling of what they had just witnessed, and then signs. This is the most important one is that signs refers to the intent of God's supernatural work to point to something greater that God was attesting through the Son, through these miracles and through the wonder working in people's minds so that they would see a greater truth that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one God has sent, that he is the one who God has promised. It is him. That was the intent of these Signs and wonders, and this is we'll see this over and over again over the next few chapters, the sign and wonders are being done at the hands of the apostles. And what we always see, and this is important for us to catch, is that we never see signs and wonders disconnected throughout the book of Acts. They're never disconnected from one another. The purpose of the signs was to point to something greater, the greater spiritual truth. John chapter six, the miracle with the bread. What does Jesus proclaim after that? I'm the bread of life. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, what does he say to that? I'm the resurrection and life. It was a sign to point. It was the, it was the miracle that there could be wonder to sign to say, Hey, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection of life. That was the intent. Everybody with me still follow me. I know we're diving into the deep end for a moment, but just stay with me. And what we see through the book of Acts is that the mere marvel of an act has no value disconnected from the intent to the point to the point to the divine power of God. That this emotion, this feeling, and if we're chasing emotion and feelings, if it's disconnected to see the power of God, then it has no value. And Jesus was always making sure that his apostles and his disciples and those around him knew that he was never acting on his own. Right? It's my father working through me. I'm about my father's business. I'm about my father's will. It's my father doing these things through me. Why? Because Peter knew, I mean, that Jesus knew that on the day of Pentecost, Peter was going to stand up and say, the father attested to Jesus. He made sure that people knew it was the Father and it proved his deity and his connection to the Father, but also the Father's approval, as in this is the one the Father has sent. If the baptism wasn't enough, it's my son in whom I'm well pleased, then these signs and wonders just to, to point to people, hey, this is the one God has sent. Don't miss it. This is the one. And that's why Peter said that God attested to them that Jesus was the Messiah by his life. But the second undeniable truth that he gives them in verse 22 is that they witnessed it. Not only did Jesus of Nazareth, did God attest to them, but they saw him, they heard him, they experienced those things. He says, What does he say? signs and wonders did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. There's an undeniable truth that these people here had heard about how God had been attesting to the Son. They had seen the mighty teachings or heard the mighty teachings and seen the mighty deeds. What Peter is saying is that they could not claim ignorance here. That their rejection wasn't based on a lack of information, but on hatred and love for sin. They didn't choose to reject Jesus because they didn't have enough information. They saw it. The father attested, yet they still chose to crucify. Which we'll get to in a minute. You see this example in John chapter 10, 37 through 39. It's interesting that through the Gospels, you never see them deny his works, but they also always responded in hatred. They saw it, Peter said, as before their eyes. In John 15, 24 and 25, this is Jesus' words. He said, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But check this out. But now they have seen and, and both hated me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. In, the law, in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. What Peter is saying is that his life and his works were conclusive and undeniable that he was the Messiah. He was attested by the Father, and they saw it. But John 3 still tells us that the people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. You're going to say, Justin, man, that's crazy. Before we judge them, before we judge them, there are many people, I believe, who, who sit in here every Sunday. And the reason why you haven't chose to believe in Jesus is not because of lack of information. It's because you choose your life over surrendering to him. There is no more information to share other than the Son of God became man, and he lived a perfect sin-free life, and he was nailed to a cross, and he was placed in a tomb, and three days later, he rose again. That's all the information you need, and the Holy Spirit will attest to that if you just surrender to it. Hey, hey let's get serious about this. We're looking at these guys, these, these dumb Jews. no. Every Sunday, our churches are filled with people who have all the information they need to know Jesus, yet they still choose to live their own life and walk in their sin. Oh, God, break, I pray God breaks your heart because we are living in the messianic age that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but one day he will come and he will set his kingdom up and we will bow whether we choose to today or not. Oh, come, come by grace this morning. First proof was his life. Second proof is his death. Verse 23, Peter says, this Jesus, it could be said, this man, this Jesus of Nazareth, this one, Peter's saying this, he's literally what he's about to do. He's about to make a contrast between the person who God honored as Messiah and the person that they rejected. It says, this one, this, this Jesus who you've seen, this Jesus who you've heard about, this Jesus, he was delivered up. And check out these words, according to the definite plan and the knowledge or the foreknowledge of God. I'm going to do my best to unpack those words. I know those are buzzwords for us. Oh my gosh, he said, definite plan and foreknowledge. I'm just going to walk through them. But Peter's being a really good preacher here. So he says the last days and the question they may be having is, well, who's the Messiah? Jesus is the Messiah. Well, how would he, if he's the Messiah, how is he the victim? How could the Messiah be a victim of a betrayer and be crucified to the cross? Why didn't he flex his muscles a little bit? And so Peter's going to say, hey, hold on for a moment. Let me answer that question you're not even asking, but you may be in your mind. He says, listen to me, that this Jesus, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Delivered up, it's only used, this word here is only used here. And it literally means surrendered to their enemies. And listen to me, church, child of God, listen to this. In sending his son for the salvation of the world, God delivered up his son to his enemies. Oh, if that doesn't break your heart for a good gospel, that literally the father delivered up his son to his enemies. In order for God to save me and you, he had to deliver up Jesus to his enemies, y'all. That's what Peter's saying here. He delivered him up to his enemies. By the design of God, Jesus was betrayed by Judas into the hands of Jewish leaders who handed him over to Rome to be executed. Do not get it twisted. This was no accident or no coincidence. He was not the victim. It was the plan that the God, the father would deliver his son to these people. He was not a victim of anything. He was living out the plan, the predetermined, definite plan of God. Hey, listen to him. When you, think, when you start, when we get to Easter or you watch the Passion and you start looking, oh, poor Jesus. Yeah, our hearts should be moved. No, it was God's plan. He wasn't weak. He was the son of God, but he understood that his father was going to deliver him up to his enemies. This word definite is the word predetermined. It comes from the word horizon, where we get our word horizon, which literally means to mark out with boundary. He was delivered up uh, to the definite, the predetermined, the, the plan that would have been, had marked out with the boundary. Listen to me. Jesus was delivered to death because God had planned it and ordained it. Check this out. For all of eternity. Oh, scripture backs that up. Tremendously. It teaches us that this plan of God wasn't that in God, in this word foreknowledge, and I think we think about this word foreknowledge, we just say, oh, he just knew what was happening beforehand. And what that does is that gives in indication that God could see everything. And once he saw everything, then he made this plan. That's not what Peter's saying here. It was out of his foreknowledge, his, poor or his preordaining knowledge, this was the plan for all of eternity. It wasn't that, they, that God is just so smart that he, he looked across the human history and said, All right, well, how are they going to respond to the Messiah? Okay, I see how they're going to respond. So this is what I'm going to do now. It's always been the definite plan. And in this foreknowledge, it has always been the definite, preordained plan. Acts 4, in another sermon we'll get to, he talks about how. Jesus, the anointed, was there, and Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, literally did whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. That even Pontius Pilate and Herod were a part of God's predetermined plan. 1 Timothy tells us that he gave us Christ before the ages began. Revelation tells us before the foundation of the world, this has always been the plan for all of eternity. Foreknowledge is the word prognosis. It's more than just knowledge beforehand. I've already expounded upon that, but it's out of his foreordaining knowledge, he predestined and predetermined that this would happen. So he attributes Jesus's death to the sovereign plan of God. But God's sovereignty doesn't negate their responsibility. Because he says, who you crucified. And killed by the hands of lawless, literally godless men. He's speaking of Rome here. You delivered the Messiah to Rome, is what he's saying. And here in this great verse 23, we have the great paradox that we find in the Bible of God's total sovereignty, yet the responsibility of man. We see it, Jesus himself says in Luke 22, 22, speaking of Judas, he says, for the son of man goes as it has been determined, right? But woe to the man whom he is betrayed. That's the paradox that we find throughout the scriptures, that God is totally sovereign, yet that does not negate our responsibility for our own sin, whom you crucified, whom you delivered over to lawless, godless people. Peter said, hey, it was God's plan. Don't get it twisted. But you're still responsible for your sin and rejection of the Messiah. The Old Testament taught us that the Messiah would die. They missed that part. And we're not responsible for all the purposes of God, but what we understand in Scripture is that we are responsible for our sin. Every single one of us. These guys and all of us in here, we're all responsible for our sin. We're still held accountable for them, and that's what Peter says here. Whom you crucified." but listen to me, child of God. If nothing encourages you this morning, because I know I'm kind of loud, but I'm kind of excited. I haven't been around people in like a 10 days, and so I just want i like to be here with you is that God took the darkest moment in the history of Israel where they crucified the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb. They nailed him to a cross through the hands of godless people. But it was a part of his plan for the salvation of all mankind. If God can take, and listen, this, this, is, the, this is a side note. This is a lens which we look at all of life, right? When we're looking out through the world and we're seeing these terrible things going on and how evil our world is and how sinful and sick our world is. Listen to me. If God takes the, the literally the darkest moment in all of human history and uses it for the salvation of the world, then that's the perspective we look at everything in our life and everything around us. We look at it through the lens of the cross that God takes the most wicked and evil and uses it for his glory and for the good. His death confirmed that he was the Messiah and the Father delivered him and the Old Testament foretold of his sufferings, yet they missed it. Number three, Luke, I'm finished and I don't care what you say. Number three, the third proof is his resurrection and this is the heart of apostolic preaching this is the this is the 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 like the 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 most crucial component right because if not then we're talking about the death of a heroic martyr or we're talking about the pathetic death of a madman or we're talking about the execution of a fraud oh but he was resurrected His resurrection proves his deity and his messiahship. He he came up from the grave. God raised him up. He says, and listen to me, he spends one verse in Jesus's life. He spends one verse in Jesus's death and he spends nine verses in Jesus's resurrection. That's why the apostle had to be a witness of the resurrection of Christ. Because it was what was the difference than anything else. It is what gave the power to preach. It was what gave the power and the authority to say that he's the Messiah because he rose, he defeated the grave. His resurrection proves his deity, but also guarantees our resurrection, church. It says that that God raised him up, that the same God, listen to me, oh man, this is the same God that delivered him up. To his enemies is the same God that raised him up. God raised him up, and it says, in raising him up, he loosened he loosening the pangs of death. Isn't that good to hear this morning? That when Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, was raised when God raised him up, it loosened the pains of death. Literally, what he's saying is the birth pains the pain of the grave. He's literally giving the picture of childbirth here, which is kind of cool to think about because out of the womb of the earth comes the risen, reigning Savior. The first fruit of of the grave is Christ. And because this Jesus was delivered up and raised up, death has lost its sting. It's got a loud bark, but it ain't got no teeth because of this Messiah. And I love this. He says, because it was not possible for him to be held by. It couldn't keep him down. It could not hold him. There are many reasons why. The first one is power. He's the resurrection and the life. Death can't keep him down. The promise that he would be, that the Father would raise him again. And here's a good one, the purpose, the purpose of his death. I read a guy say this, that God intends to be with his people forever. In order to do that, they need to go through death and out the other side. Jesus went first to make a way, and because he lives, we live. That's why death couldn't hold him. (laughs) And then in verses 25 through 28, he quotes Psalm 16. See if you see the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ in this psalm who David wrote, by the way. He says this, look at verse 25. For David says concerning him, Peter's given say David's talking about the Messiah, I saw the Lord was always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken here. He's speaking as if Jesus is speaking. And and so what he says is that I saw the Lord before me, his right hand, which means protection. And we see that in Jesus' life, that he knew that his father would protect him, that his father would guard him, that his father was at his right hand and his shield. And so he, he lived his life in the will of the father. But now look at verse 28. Therefore, my heart was glad. Therefore, my heart was glad, reminding me of Hebrews 12, 2. This is looking to Jesus, the founder, and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He, he knew his father would protect him. So he therefore by joy walked in the father's will. And check out the next one. It says my flesh age well and hope. God knew his father was protecting him, so he joyfully walked in the will of the Lord and even surrendered his flesh to the predetermined plan of the father. Keep going with me. There's his life. Verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. He's now in the grave. You will not let my... you will not let your Holy One seek corruption there. When he was in the grave, his body never saw corruption. His Father was with him at all times here. And then you see verse 28, take this out. So he's in the grave. And you, will, you have made known to me the paths of life. He's resurrected to life. And then verse 28 ends with, you will make me full of gladness with your presence when the Son of God walks back into the presence of the Father once again. Oh, what a beautiful picture of the gospel through this guy named David. And then 29 through 32, ultimately what he says is that this wasn't about David, y'all. David was writing it, but he says, listen, to David died. He's in his tomb, and we can go look at his tomb now. But what David was writing about, he was writing about this Jesus. It was to writing about the one to come, the one who would come and sit on his throne fourthly. And I'm wrapping up with this one, his life, his death, his resurrection. And number four, his exaltation. Look at verse 33. It says, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, check this out. He has poured out this. That you yourselves are seeing and hearing, what does Peter do? They come to him going, what in the world is going on? And what he says is "Is this Jesus that you saw, that you crucified, that was buried, that Jesus, that that he rose again. He's now at the right hand of the Father, and the Father has given him the Spirit. And what you're seeing is this Jesus pouring the Spirit out upon us. (laughs) Oh, y'all. It's a full circle moment. This Jesus, the Messiah, you rejected God, God accepted and brought him up and set him at the throne, gave him the spirit. And what he's doing now is what he promised would do. And he would give us his spirit. What's going on? Jesus is the Messiah. He quotes Psalm 110. Lord said, am I right? Uh, Lord said to my Lord, said to my right hand, I will make your enemies your footstool. That is kind of talking about the coming. What's the word, Luke? Session? There will be a moment whenever God will ultimately make all of the enemies of Jesus his footstool. He will sit upon his throne. And then Peter says it. Emphatically, what the whole sermon was built up to, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Literally means Lord and Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucify. Man, what an incredible sermon by Peter. And the whole thing is this, listen to me, proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. God has made this man the Messiah, the only way of salvation. Church, look at me when I say this Jesus is on his throne, the Messiah the promised one. And you and I, through the Gospels, have been witnesses of the testing of the Father to this man. We've experienced this grace and this salvation, and the Holy Spirit attests within us that he is Lord. Where I want to end this morning is have you trusted in him? You've got all the information you need to know him. There is no other supernatural knowledge. Listen, there is knowledge that comes to revelation once you you become a child of God. If you're waiting on some kind of new information, what God is going to keep telling you is, this is my son, the Messiah. This is the one whom I have sent to be the Savior of the world. There is no more information past that that you need to know to trust him. Will you trust and believe? Because right now, I want to echo Joel, and I want to echo Peter. All who call upon the name of the Lord can be and will be saved. Will you call upon him this morning? I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to exit out over there because I don't want to affect nobody. Just I spit a little bit. It's anointed, though. It's got antibodies in it. You go ahead and take it. But Luke's going to be, uh, you gonna, where are you going to he will be in the back. Ryan's back there in the back. If you need to talk, uh, and Paul's over here too, if you need to talk, y'all talk to them like, hey, we're living in the last days. That's not a scare tactic. And right now, salvation is available to you. Don't, Don't waste another opportunity to trust in Jesus. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your help of getting through it. God, I pray that right now you convict people, somebody who has seen all they need to see. They've heard all they need to hear. But God, I pray that your Holy Spirit will do what he, what he did for these people in Acts 2. They will break their hearts that they will trust in Jesus. The same Jesus that they once rejected, some, some 3,000 of them are going to choose him in Acts 2. So God, I pray that today your Spirit gives us faith to believe.